0: Having a Gas is the podcast that talks the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having a gas with Elliot Shiner, a recording and mix engineer who's been in the business for 54 years. He began his career as an apprentice to the legendary Phil Ramone, and went on to work with the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Paul McCartney, amongst others, and now has a mantelpiece full of Grammys. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, Where are you at the moment? Are you uh, on the East Coast, the West Coast?
1: Yeah, I'm on the East Coast. I'm actually in my studio.
0: And what keeps you busy in your studio at the moment?
1: Well, right now I'm doing a Bob Weir record. It was a live performance. And uh, I'd never worked with Bob before. And I'm just blown away by what he does. What's, What's been impressive to you? Well, he's singing great, and I mean the songs are like dead songs, and uh, the band's just fabulous.
0: It's the Wolf Brothers, right? Uh, so it's pretty great. Um, let's first of all just talk a little bit about what the last year and a half has been like for you, because I get the impression that you're very much someone who likes working in the let's say, with the live room, with a a live band in the live environment. So what's it been like since the pandemic began? Well, since the pandemic, there's been
1: very little live in the studios in New York. And I haven't been going out to LA or Nashville. So it's been rough since I've done mixing at the power station in New York. Everybody's wearing a mask. It's owned by Berkeley College of Music now, and they demand certain things, distance, you know. So, so it was a little tough, but I got a bunch of stuff done. I enjoyed being back. I guess that was about eight or nine months ago. And just being there, actually doing stuff on an analog console was, you know, I felt great. And recently, actually, the past two days, I just finished a jazz record over two days. And that's the very first time I had a big live band. Not a big, but just a live band there. And it was just thrilling. The week before, I did uh, Bruce Springsteen's wife, who's doing a record, and she wanted strings on the record, so doing that and, and, and even doing that, there was, you know, it was a string section of like five A's, five B's, uh, three violas and three cellos. But doing that normally, that, that wouldn't take up much room, but the union in New York is saying, these guys have to be six feet away So, the compliment of mics was a puzzlement when guys are that far apart. You know, how are you doing the mics? So, I just experimented with what I normally do. And I got a call from their engineer, and he said it worked out great. So,
0: took a chance. Of course. That was, you preempted my question, which is that you'll be familiar with recording string sections in a typical way. What happens to the acoustics when you have to spread everyone out so far?
1: Actually, it worked out okay. You know, I was worried that it wouldn't, but I was using really good mics. So it, 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 it actually covered everybody. Whereas in a string section, you know, if it's, you know, 8As, eight 8Bs, eight you know, I might use four mics on the A's and four mics on the B's, maybe. Uh, in this case, I used two AB7s on the uh, five A's, but it worked out okay.
0: Yeah, that's uh, just off mic a moment ago for the benefit of the, the audience. We were just talking about... Uh, Bill Schnee, who has recently been on our podcast and of course is a an associate of Elliot. They have uh, won Grammys together and uh, things like this. Uh, Bill was revealing in great detail his uh, approach to you know how uh, recording string sections, recording horn sections in a room, and achieving a bigger sound with fewer mics. And is that what turned out happening here?
1: Yes, uh, it's always been since I have met Al Schmidt and he was a good friend. You know, I said, Al, what's the best way to do this? Because I'm from New York, Al's from L.A., and they do it differently. In New York, you know, you'd, you'd place higher mics, but you'd place it like once every two. You know, so it was way overwhelming. And Al said, no, just use two mics, put it up top you know
0: it'll be fine and it was right and i'm sure bill learned from al as well yeah there wasn't a let's say that uh, earlier this year um when uh, uh when al schmidt passed away there wasn't a dry eye in the house in the engineering world uh, was al a close friend of yours yes yeah and so um obviously that's been uh tough for the whole community but uh, the first thing that andrew Shep's said when he was on uh well not the first thing he was talking about uh uh, the Al Schmidt, possibly the greatest engineer, one of the greatest engineers to have worked among us, and uh, the minimal m- mixing setup that he used and not you know not in the modern way with a hundred groups and everything summed twice and it was very, very straightforward, but produced amazing music using that simplicity
1: yeah, I mean he, he would do a tracking session in fact, he taught a tracking session at uh, Berkeley in Boston. And it wasn't a big room, but it was a fairly big band. And they asked me if I would second for him. And I went in there, I seconded for Phil, and just for Al, and just watching what he does with the mics is amazing, you know? And we got together. He used virtually no EQ on any of the tracks. He didn't mix that track. He did a rough mix on it, but, but he does that all the time. He doesn't use he, he used EQ on tracks, but, and when he mixes, he doesn't use EQ. For Al, it was always a question of miking and what kind of mic and where they were sitting. And I learned the same sort of thing with Phil, but not as
0: refined as what Al does. So are we talking about the practice of making sure that the record sounds as close to finished as possible as it comes into the desk? Correct. Brilliant stuff to know. And we, you mentioned Phil a moment ago, which is a good place to start. And we'll uh, maybe go down memory lane here because I know that, uh, I believe anyway, that your introduction to the business was that you were an assistant to Phil Ramon. Um, right one of the greatest producers of the 20th century. So first of all, how did you get that gig?
1: It's odd. You know, I decided that after hearing *Sgt. Pepper, I decided I want to be Jeff Emmerich. And uh, I called my uncle, who was a New York City studio musician. He was was a big band player. He played with uh, Benny Goodman and the Dorsey Brothers world war ii kind of stuff so i told him what i wanted to do how could i do it he said meet me up at anr studios which is where and we'll see so i meet him at anr he's got a date that afternoon and he immediately introduced me to phil and told phil he's looking for a job And he and Phil were pretty decent friends. And I got to say, it was probably because they were good friends. Phil said, okay, uh, let's go talk for a few minutes. And I went in, talked to him in his office. And he said, can you start today? And I said, well, no, but I can't start tomorrow. He said, okay, be here at eight. And that's how it got started. He didn't really ask me anything, but he liked the way i was dressed I, I was dressed i was a total hippie at that point <laughs> and wearing beads and you know just so you know but but he liked because everybody at a and in new york during that time period it didn't matter who you were working with you wore a suit a tie a white shirt you know and that's the way you would dressed. and here i was Dressed like this. And he said, Can you wear a jacket tomorrow? And I said, Yeah. And I started to learn about setting up a room from another second. And uh, I started to rip my clothes. And I went to Phil. I said, Look, you know, I have one jacket and it's now ripped. Would it be okay if I just wore a shirt and tie? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, that would be okay. And I was wearing a pair of apple seeds around my neck. And he said, where'd you get that from? And I said, down in the village. Can you get me a pair? Yeah, of course. And that's how we sort of became friends and compadres.
0: Very. It's not very often you get to speak to someone with that kind of experience, you know, that you've had. And um, it sounds as if we'll talk more about what you've done with Phil in a moment. But um, just talking about the culture of the 60s for a moment, in the modern day, we, people like myself, I was born in 92, we imagine that the 60s was all beads around the neck, long hair and, you know, hippie dress. But, well, as you said, though, in the professional realm, it was still, there was very much an expectation of formality. Someone um, that I spoke to on this podcast said that the 60s didn't really start till the 70s. What do you think of a statement like that?
1: Say that again?
0: The 60s didn't really begin until the 70s. Not at all. <laughs>
1: no, it began in the 60s. Right. I, you know, and I want to say around 64, 65, and Woodstock, which was already a big event for hippies, was in 69. So, 70,
0: it started to sort itself out a bit. Yeah. yeah. I don't agree with that, you know? Yeah. I suppose a lot of people see the um, Altamont Freeway concert with the Stones as a moment where the magic began to fade a little bit. Um, but obviously, that was quite a seminal event because, you know, there was a couple of deaths there. I think there might have been one death there or something like that. But, um, but yeah, I see that hangs on to what you were saying there. Uh, did you work with the Stones at all? No, never. My never. friend, Ed Shearney did a
1: ton of stuff with Stones. I didn't know, except for Ed,
0: I didn't know anybody. Right. So um, let's uh, briefly get, let's get back to uh, what you were learning with Phil. And um, what was the, what how, how, was the journey going from being just uh, asking you into the studio and saying, you know, can you sort this out for me to being someone who he would allow to not run the session, but get on the console and make decisions.
1: Well, after working for a couple of weeks with Phil, his second time taught me everything about how to set up a room, especially for Phil. And I started doing that myself and, he would expect you like he was doing an album with uh, uh, a trombone player a famous trombone player and it was 21 trombones and he said i'm gonna leave this to you to set up and coming up with an idea of how i'd want this it was 21 bones but there was a rhythm section it was Uh, drums, guitar, piano, bass. And I set them up on podiums, about one and a half foot podiums. I had half, half of them on the floor and half of them on the podiums. And they were on an angle and they blew to each other, which would cut down on the leakage from one section to the other. And, he came and see the setup that morning. Was blown away by it, and I continued on like that, trying to come up with things that were a little different from what he did, but offered him the security of being able to deal with it. So we did that for a while, and Phil's method for teaching you—I mean, you could ask Phil a question any time after. The day was over, anything you want, and he would tell you honestly. Um, so I would always ask him questions, he would stay past, way past the day, just to answer what I, I asked. And one day, we're doing uh, an album with Jimmy Smith, you know who that is. Uh, I'm not familiar with Jimmy Smith, I'm afraid. He was a famous jazz, blues, organ player. He was famous here in the States. And the dates would start at 7 o'clock at night. It was for a full week. And it was a band of about maybe six guys. And first two nights go by. Seb's fine. He liked it. It sounded good. But every night, when you're finished, you have to break it down because the next morning there was probably a jingle in there. So it was birthday out, and I'd have to set it up every night. On the third night, when Phil would usually walk in, there's no Phil, and I'm getting really nervous. And I'm calling his office and calling all around. Nobody, fine receptionist, doesn't know where he is. Literally, two minutes before we're ready to start, he calls me. He says, I'm busy right now. You're going to have to do this. And I sat there dumbfounded like, Phil, I can't do this. And he said, you can and you will. I'll see you tomorrow. And and that was it. You know, he would do things like that. It's your session now. And at the time... He was a single guy. And what he had, he had a dinner date. You know, and I didn't find out until later that he had a dinner date. Uh, but it worked out fun, You know, I, I basically watched what Phil did for the first two days and went along the same line. Now, Phil would in in Anar's rooms back in the 60s, late 60s, you had nothing but a console. It was a uh, a three track console a broadcast console with a, a small ampex mixer that had six inputs and the ampex mixer was the fourth channel one two three went to the first three on a four track and at that point most most things were done either four track or 8 track but this room was set up before and What was the point I was trying to make?
0: Well, this was the, yeah.
1: No, I know. Uh, In the room, it was the console. As far as EQ, you had two EQs. They were both EQP1A. So if you need an EQ, you had to be very careful what you used it on. There were also, there was a Fairchild 670, and that was it. You had two, two compressors, two EQs. You had to do the day without using anything. Yeah. And after becoming an engineer, I realized I could do that. I I wouldn't have to use anything. And just, just what he taught me, where the mic goes, how to mic it. If it doesn't sound right, go back out there, listen, and see how you think it might go and change it. If it's the wrong mic, change the mic. Or move the guy, you know, any number of things. And uh, and that's the way we did dates in those days. I mean, I don't think we had a, a console with the EQ uh, until late 69, and it was an MCI at the time. And when that came in, it was more like, well, what can this do? You know, it had had, uh, EQ inputs on every track. I'm saying, well, you know, what will I do if I can do this? You know, and I started getting a little more dependent on what an EQ would do on track. But generally,
0: I grew up learning how to mic. And so you were very much present as an engineer, uh, as an engineer, at least for the overlap period when making a record was all about recording and into the period where there was much more of an emphasis on production after the input had been recorded on manipulating it after it had been recorded. Correct. What, did, what was your experience of that change of going from m- Pure micing to manipulation after the fact.
1: Well, it depends, you know. And the it was pure micing and mixing before, you know, like an MCI came in, so I wasn't doing anything. When I did, like for example, I did Van Morrison, and in, in a room that we did, uh, we had an MCI, and I fooled around with it and I mic'd a few of the things uh, with EQ but it was not overwhelming and it was an 8-track recording and I, ca- I came to mix it uh, a couple of months later and I was on a console that had no EQ it was a small 8-track console you had a you had a a, a one fader per track and that's how it was mixed it was stereo and then mono and you did it pretty much twice um so i did that and it worked out fine you know van wasn't there and i was doing this by myself and i thought well geez maybe i should get one of the band members in here to just give me some guidance Van was in Woodstock. I was in New York, and I got the drummer to come in and talk to me. And he stayed there for the whole thing. We we did the whole thing together, and that ended up being Moon Dance, which was one of one of Van's bigger records.
0: You have had the benefit of working with many artists who are on many people's you know top five lists. Um, and, uh, I'd like to get into that in a moment. One of the things I wanted to pick up on though was not only inspired by, um, thinking about Phil Ramone, but also Bob Ludwig, m- a mastering engineer you've worked with a great deal. And, um, I only learned recently that both of those individuals were classically trained musicians. Now, one of my questions to you, Elliot, is, was that more the case Back then, let's say in the '60s, that your engineers and your studio people would be from the classical tradition, or at least musically trained to a, a fairly high degree. The, the ones that were trained were, I mean, Phil was a violinist, and
1: apparently I never heard him play, but he was he was a great player. With Bob, he had gone to school, and I think he played trumpet, and he was classically trained. Bob started at AR and he started a few months before me. So we're pretty new to the industry. And he originally thought he wanted to be an engineer and just ended up being the mastering guy. And Odysseus was so phenomenal. You know, I couldn't think of a better guy to do that. Um, But most of the guys when I came in, weren't classically shame. i mean i played too but i was playing rock and roll and i left that to come to a&r because i knew i wasn't going to get anywhere with that you know in those days there were so many artists signed and it was like they threw you out there and come up with a record that'll sell that was it was a hard thing to do. And they, they would actually try and market it, but it just, you know, I had to move on. I want to make
0: music, not play music. And uh, you so you were getting into the industry to try and be a rock and roll star, as many of us do.
1: No, I was just trying to engineer. I didn't care what, what I engineered. If I had my ways, I wanted to work with the Beatles and Jeff Emmerich. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have that time. I didn't have that chance. I met Jeff, and Jeff and I were good friends, uh, starting in about the nineties. And just being in the same room with Jeff and knowing what he had done was so awe-inspiring. It would almost it made you want to learn again. And I yeah. came into it. He was doing a date for, Sean Lennon. And I came in when he was recording it and saw how he mic'd the drums and room mics and everything he did and the Fairchilds and it just, it was so overwhelming to me. And he would come up with what he did for the Beatles. It was just like, oh my God, how does this guy do this? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it made me want to learn. I couldn't learn what Jeff was doing, but I wanted to. Yeah. And when you go into, even though I'd been doing it for almost 30 years at that point, I I wanted to be, I wanted to learn. I wanted to be just like Jeff. Now, uh, you know, I wish I could have been, but, uh, you know, I don't know what Jeff's background as far as playing was, but uh, most of the guys were, in that frame of mind, we weren't doing classical.
0: There was some money in classical,
1: and we were doing, you know, rock and roll.
0: And that's been good business. And obviously, uh, I think at least you did achieve the dream at some point of working with not the Beatles, the band, but some of the individuals. Uh, Paul. I worked with Paul. How was that? Oh, God. The most unbelievable human
1: being ever. I mean, he, when he walks into a session, you're his focus. When he meets you, he wants to know about you. you and, and it was overwhelming to me that he actually remembered my name. And when we finished up, I, I asked. I, I remember asking when he came in, "Do I call you what? Do I call you Sir Paul?" Paul? He said, Call me Paul. And we got along like that. And he was every time he'd come in from the studio, he'd look at me and sort of nod his head. Um, when we finished, I said, I have two kids. I said, I hate to ask you, would you sign an autograph for him? And he, oh, of course. So we were at Avatar at the time, which is now Power Station again. And I took out two track sheets and I handed it to him. And he was busily writing on the the sheet, uh, what's the first one saying, what's the second one saying. And he wrote something. And I didn't really read what he wrote, but where he signed his name in parentheses underneath. know, they were young, young kids, he put down your dad's friend and I went, Oh my God. It was like,
0: it, it, it made me want to cry. That is one of the gifts that Paul McCartney has given to many people. Just, you know, the, not the direct experience that you got, which is obviously just a tremendous uh, privilege, but, um, That is how people feel. I remember a friend of mine saying when you hear the Beatles, it's like hearing music for the first time again. You know, on some tracks, you get that rejuvenating experience. What a blessing that you experienced it personally. Um, And uh, one thing that's interesting is um, when I was looking down your uh, career, your rap sheet, let's say, um, uh, is that I I was doing my research online and there's conflicting reports of things you've been working on, which I'm sure a lot of people find. Um, who have worked on as many famous records as uh, as you have? Um, what was the work that you did? You've done with Fleetwood Mac. I only did one thing with them.
1: Uh, I did their reunion record, which was an MTV uh, video show. That was called the Dance, and uh, that was the only thing I ever did with them. But during that time period of recording. Uh, doing a couple of overdubs to fix parts here and there and mixing, we all became great friends. Now I had done Christine years before. She did uh, She did a couple of stolen records that Russ Teitelman produced. And uh, I was engineering for him and she was divine. I mean, she was so warm and friendly and, I just loved her. So when I saw her to do dance, it was old home week with me uh, as far as she was concerned. But everybody in the band was fabulous,
0: especially Mick. Yeah, well, I mean, he is the namesake of the band, isn't he? And Mick seems like, from a distance, of course, but he seems like a fairly decent and fairly what, good-humored guy. He is, and he's
1: not hesitant to ask questions, question what you're doing and how you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Would you consider this or that? But, you know, actually when he heard the first recording,
0: the first show he came in, he said, don't change anything. It just sounds great. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard that, Um, that review was given to another of your mixes. I've uh, seen a report that that was the feedback you got from the Foo Fighters when they heard a surround mix in the car. Did I read that right? That's correct. Uh, What happened was they did an album called
1: In Your Honor. And one was electric, one disc electric, one disc was acoustic. And I got a call from Nick that she was producing the record. He said, could you mix the acoustic record? And we can't do it here because I'm still working on the electric. But where do you like to mix? I said, Capital. So we made arrangements to Capital, and I I did the acoustic stereos. And I'd say, every time I send the mix. Uh, I, would call me if you've got a problem. You uh, know, the first mix I heard from, uh, Dave, who introduced himself, and uh, he said, sounds great. Just do this. And I did a whole stereo mix, not recalling anything. So we did that, and they want to do a, a surround album. And, I start on the surround and I do the first cut and I'm thinking, how are these guys going to listen to a surround in their room when they don't have a system? But I had recently designed the first surround system in a car and that was the Acura, which I don't think you guys have. And uh, I said, well, gee, it, it would make sense to have them listen in the car because what I do here is relevant to the car. What I did for the car was relevant to what I, I mix. So I called up back here and I said, Hey, you know, I'm doing this around them with the foos. They have no way of listening to it. Can you send the car up there? And the girl I spoke to, Dave Grohl, was like, She was the biggest fan of Dave. So can I bring it up? I said, yeah, of course. So she drove the car up there and uh, showed him how to use it. And I sent the mix over. Uh, we actually made a dvd Because that was what was, the car was playing. And all of them got in there. Dave and all the guys got in there and listened to this. And I got a call from Dave and he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe what this sounds like. And he said, just do it. And to the cost of the record, that's how it was done. I think there were two problems that Nick wanted to change. And they weren't extensive. And he ended up coming to Capitol to hear everything. And we made two minor changes in it. And that was done. The great thing after it was, was they bought a car. You want to hear it that way. So you know, it was it said a lot to me because I designed the system and he listened and approved an album based on that system. And he liked
0: the system so much, he bought a car. Wow. So on um on Elliot Shiner's rap sheet is also managed to sell a car to Dave Grohl, which is a yeah true cl- crowning glory. I'm interested in, God. He
1: called me up uh, uh, like a week or two later and said, I want a silver car and the Steeler is telling me he doesn't have a silver <laughs> car. So I called that same girl and told her what Dave was trying to do. He said, she said, oh, I'll, I'll get him a car right away.
0: Of course. Yeah, that's the kind of uh, sway that you can have if you're Dave Grohl, who, if nothing else, is seems like possibly the most pleasant person in rock music. But um, One of the nicest people. Yeah, yeah. And he gives the impression of uh, being someone who would, um, you know, uh, go the extra mile, even if you weren't a particularly, even if you were just an acquaintance, you know, he would, he would do something for you, you know, to do a favor.
1: Yeah, he would. In fact must have been about six months after that they were playing near me
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh i called up his road guy and i said gee you know my my son is a big fan of the foods i would love to bring him to a show can i get in because it was sold out he said yeah of course Uh, let me talk to dave and he told dave And Dave told him, yeah, absolutely, you know. And I said, is it okay if I bring my son's friend and his father? No problem. In fact, come early and we'll have dinner. (laughs) So I get there. I go in the back entrance and uh, I see his robe guy. And uh, he said, just go down the hallway. Dave's in the last dressing room on the left. You know, this glass there, just wave. And uh, we go down there, and my son's not thinking anything right now. Mm -hmm. But I see Dave, and I wave. He comes out, and he gives me a big hug. And I can see in a local mirror my son with his mouth dropped that Dave gave me a hug. (laughs) You know, so it was...
0: That's the kind of thing he did for my kid. Yeah. Yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I'm going to take a little segue back to the world of technicality and engineering and stuff away from the world of warmth and the brill- the beauty of human interaction. But we're talking about designing the system for the car. And that piqued my interest because I saw uh, Jimmy Iovine and uh, Dr. Dre tuning their vehicle, you know, with subwoofers and stuff, just so it sounds good for them to listen to. But um, uh, the idea of how you would design a sound system for for a car, for example, is so opaque to me, I wouldn't even know what the process would be, you know, how it would be done, how you would decide, are you just putting speaker cones up or are you going in and modifying the EQ curves? How does it work? Yeah, you modify the EQ. So you're tuning every
1: speaker and the interaction between uh, what speakers have in them, like a surround system. You have left, right, center, uh, left, rear, right, rear, and sub. However, that would account for seven speakers, six speakers. and uh, But there are much more. So... On the left, there's a driver in the door. On the right, there's a driver in the door. Uh, You know, I I just finished this system for Acura. It's got 23 speakers. So you have to figure out how it gets split up, what carries what, and how it affects the rest of the car. Um, It's a lot of tuning. And I wouldn't say anything bad about Jimmy because I hired Jimmy and I gave Jimmy his first job. He was my second. And wow. and I gave it to him because we played hockey together. And he said, what do you do? And I told him, he said, wow, can I come up and visit you? And he came up. I was doing an album with uh, Ellie Greenwich, who was a singer-songwriter from the 60s. And he said, oh, I want to do this. So I heard it. And when he talks about that. He always says, you know, he got his job through me. He didn't stay long in A&R up over the record plan. But, so I won't say anything bad. You know, like, Jimmy and, and, and Dr. Dre didn't really tune that. I mean, it's an extensive two-week period of time, like, three, three times a year. just, Three or four times a year just to get the thing sounding right. And I'm sure they didn't spend six weeks doing
0: beats. I, yeah, I imagine that there's the other priorities on the schedule. Exactly. You know, but I would have to, it was my system. Yeah. And I
1: had to make it better than anything that's out there. And the fact of the matter, I did an interview with ABC yesterday and this one who was interviewing me said you know i i got to listen to your car and i played music i hated, it and now i love it so she said i've never heard a car sound like this and by far we're the best sounding system in all of automotive
0: the uh, travel corridor between the UK and the US has just reopened for those watching in the future that's where we are in history flights to New York are very very cheap so I'm thinking about going over and renting one of those cars and just playing records
1: you can't rent it but I'll give you (laughs) the name
0: of an Acura guy in New York who would lend it to you you can yeah well maybe we'll do that off mic or I'll uh, email your (laughs) management about that that's remarkable um Taking a brief detour before getting back to sound, I just want to talk about Jimmy because I did not know that you were so close with Jimmy in the early days. Um, and obviously now he's taken over the world of Apple Music and all these things. And what, did, did he have that intensity when you hired him? Was he as uh, driven as he appears to be now? At that point, no. We played hockey. We're, we're friends and
1: we played hockey. and No, I, I had no idea. You know, and when I saw Jimmy... In Manhattan, just walking on the street on Fifth Avenue, you know, he saw me coming and he put his hands out.
0: He said, who'd have known? Wow. So um, that's where, um, that's, it's. I'm occasionally lost for words being at the, what would you call it, uh, precipice of so much, you know, uh, you know so many people who have been so influential in music and you've been involved with so many and made so many of the influential records that there's just so much to reach for that it can be a little bit overwhelming. But um, I'm going to stay really technical for another moment and then we're going to go into um, some other some other stuff for maybe 15, 20 minutes. But staying on the technical side at the moment, uh, just for context, this business, what we do is we're, composers and producers for UK advertising. So, you know, there's a, a lot of noise going on for uh, in our sector about people talking about spatial audio, the new way of hearing things, the new way is all spatial. And like what... Immersive? Yes. What do you think about that? What do you know about this stuff? Because obviously a lot is the first answer.
1: Well, I, I, I did an enormous amount of 5.1s. Dolby developed Atmos for the movie theaters and it really works great for movies when you're sitting in a big room like that and you have so many speakers. It really, it's very influential as far as uh, the sound. They developed or they decided that they wanted to use it for music only. I'm, I'm going to be outspoken here because I, I have a, a, a weird feeling about the Dolby Atmos thing. Number one, I've been in the business now for 50, 55 years and uh, never in my history. Have I ever heard of a designer, a manufacturer saying, you as an engineer needs to be approved to do this? I said, and the room you do it in needs to be approved as well. And all of a sudden, these guys that are developing and don't know shit about what music sounds like are telling you you're qualified or not and I took great offense to that um, and here's where I have to get down on Apple number one I don't think it works for music you know it works for theaters a bunch of my friends are working in Atmos and they say They just can't get it right. It never sounds right. And they've gone to a deal with Universal, and they've talked Universal into doing a lot of their music in Atmos. Uh, And a lot of people are doing that. And they're picking people who may have just graduated from a college. And you tell them, "Uh, okay, we're going to do this James Taylor record. And they don't know, even know who that is. But they're going to do that, not knowing anything about the record and how maybe influential and important this record might have been. And the record company says, we want to hear tons of panning, just have things flying around. And when you do that, it distracts from music. In all the, all the five ones I did I may have had one, only one pan. And it was usually something like in Hotel California, there was a pan uh, of like this. I'm what it is now. It was like a symbol that went from left to right. And I did the same thing, but I I think I did it from left front to uh, right rear. And, but they want this. Built in. And these kids are, they may be good engineers, but somebody told me most of them were seconds until they were asked to do this. But that's not the major concern. I mean, they don't know, and it's the record company's fault for doing this. They want to do it cheap. They don't want to pay a lot of money to have it done. Apple. If somebody says, or if I say, I need, I can't find my Sergeant Peppers, I need to download it, only for serial. If you go online and see Sergeant Peppers, and it says Atmos next to it, they download a stereo sound from the Atmos, which is probably screwed up to begin with. You know, so you're not hearing Jeff Emmerich's mix in stereo. You're hearing this phony stuff that they've got an algorithm for downloading. And it has nothing to do with what Jeff put into making this record. And, I guess for a lot of people, it might not matter. But, but for other people, it matters a lot. I want to hear the music that Jeff made and that Al made. I don't want to hear it downloaded from an Atmos mix, which isn't good enough to begin with.
0: So that's my take on immersive. I suppose if it's a crime to deface a statue, it should be a crime to deface a record.
1: Exactly. You know, I'm still doing five ones. You know, because there are people that want five ones. When you have have the music coming through five speakers and a sub, it, it, you really get to feel what it is like. With um, with the Eagles, I did Hotel California, the actual album in surround sound, and when you all of a sudden, the acoustic guitars, except for the one main acoustic, are in the rear. And this was stuff you've never really even heard. But you get a feeling and listen to this, that there's a place for the band. And they're there all the time. In Amos, you don't know what's going on. There's no distinct method for saying, this is a band. Here's where they are. This is
0: what they play. And it's a mystery to me. It's funny because I heard the on uh, Apple Music uh, in so I suppose it was in podcast form, but it was as if it was a radio broadcast. We heard Zane Lowe, who's you know one of the key bits of talent on Apple Music on Beats Radio, um, giving an introduction to Atmos and described it as the next step in the journey, just as stereo was from mono. This is Atmos from stereo. He was describing it as if it was the next logical step. I don't think so.
1: And I've I've known more people who say this does not make any sense. You know, yeah. Have a band in thirty-seven speakers.
0: You know. Well, th- this this is this is I suppose. Why it's being done from a top-down position rather than it's not the market that's asking for it, because generally you go to a performance, that's where your instrumentalists are. They're not over there and up there and well, they can be,
1: you know, like five in five-one, when I did the Eagles uh reunion record, Hell Freezes Over. I wanted everybody to think that in the center speaker, in in Behind the console where I was, that was the center. And you were surrounded, you were sitting on stage with the band all around you. And it wasn't, I only the Eagles were definitely up front coming out a little bit, but all the other plays, the strings, um additional players who played keyboards and guitars, were in the in the rear coming up a little bit. Everybody who wasn't an eagle was in the back. But that's where it sort of was when they did the live. So I tried to
0: say this is what it is. That There's a, a quote that hooks onto this. I'm going to move away from spatial um, and into... Discuss, discussing the modern way of making records compared to the uh, let's call it the traditional way or the original way. Uh, there's a quote from um, a um, musician called James Blake. Are you familiar with James Blake? No, no, he's one of the young one of the young guys. Uh, but uh, he said on Instagram, someone said, "Any advice?" And he said uh, something like, "Think about chords, not plugins." The modern way of making records, the way I learned. I have a digital audio workstation and you can download, um, if you know where to go when I was in college, you could download all of the bits of software that emulate Neve's and SSLs and you know Ampex and all of this stuff. And you have no idea what any of it does, what you're supposed to do with it. And you just start messing around with EQs and compressors. Um, What are your thoughts generally on the way we do things now and the way we can learn now versus the original way?
1: Well, if you're learning at, let's say, a college, you know, I trust that what they teach you is correct. If you want to make a record that way, you should. What they don't teach anywhere is that. Listen to what you're doing. You don't need to compress around that. You no. Know? Or EQ. They're. I find that most of these guys are reticent to not use EQ, compressor, reverb, you know. It's just I mixed a record for George Michael years ago. Which one? I don't know. <laughs> okay. And and it was arm work, it was on Pro Tools, and each track had six elements in it, you know compressors eqs tape simulators i mean there was so much stuff i couldn't get sound right you know i eventually had to eliminate all this stuff and do it the way i would do it um but people don't realize it's music it should sound like And they don't know, you know, being able to walk into a uh, a room and hear people playing. Like When I did Moondance, dance, uh, it was everybody playing live. There was there was Van and his guitar, and he would sing while he played. Plus another guitar, plus keyboard, bass, drums, and three, uh, two or three horns, and. They were all set up in the room, and you had to mic it so that you know it, it, it didn't interfere with one another. But there was one day, we were cutting a song, and it looked like Van had a new guitar. And it, it just didn't sound like everything he'd done so far. And I walked out into the room and I put my head down by his is the center of his guitar and listen to him play and you know and i ended up changing the mic and placing it differently you know and it's not about well i've got this this is what he's playing right now and i'll fix it in the mix you know it it, it's just that's not the way we grew up making music when you listen to the beatles and you go how did these guys do this? And so complete. And so you listen to Abbey Road and you're in in the headphones. You go, it's amazing. You know, you're so totally compelled to what they've done and how they've recorded it. You know, I listened to, up until about, 2005, you know, I still thought about listening to music I've always listened to, and and would do that, and would love it. I had stuff loaded on uh, uh, my iPod that, you know, I, I want to hear all the time. And these days, I'm trying to think of the music that's being recorded would i say even the music from the start of 2000 would i want to hear this 10 years away from this is there something there that really captures the emotion of what this person is doing that i'll always want to listen to this i'll always want to listen to the beatles I don't want to hear a lot of stuff that's 99%
0: stuff that's being done. You can't imagine um, anything having the same kind of profound effect as the first piano chords in A Day in the Life, for example, when that creeps in. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah it's true. I mean, I hate to be bent so hard on music today and not, i i think some of these guys are good performers it's hard to know what's being played live what's being recorded are there you know a lot of people bring synth bring computers with them and a lot of it comes out via what's been recorded so it's hard to say that there's the same essence of i, I really want you to hear my music I don't get that from anybody.
0: There is a preponderance of people from whom you feel I want to be famous, not I want you to hear my music. Great analogy. Right. I I do know what you mean about live playback as well. I um was there's a, a band from we're in Manchester in the UK, and there's a band from here called the 1974. I've been there. You've been
1: here? Yeah. I did a date with Stra- uh, Strawberry...
0: Strawberry Studios. Yeah, but what's the name of the band? 10CC? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's my hometown, Stockport. That's where I grew up.
1: Yeah.
0: It was great. It's a legendary studio. Um, and... Um, yes there's a there's a band that came out from here in about 2013 called the 1975 and I was very critical of, the, of them at the time because they would play they looked like a live band and they would play live but they'd be playing over a very tightly confined uh playback of, a, of you know elements on the record they couldn't play live synths and other production things like this and I was very critical I was saying well that's not really performing live but the response then was you ain't seen nothing yet because now, as you just described, most of what I see, we performed a festival recently. People bring DJ decks, they press play and the artist has a microphone. That's it. Wow. Mm. I know what to say. <laughs> I hope that the... Um, the, the essence of what it is that live music brings to people continues. And I do see that happening at festi- big festivals like Glastonbury over here. You know, there's 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 still a love for it, but there are so many shortcuts. And as you know, this is the music business and business can tend towards what's expedient and what's easy. There will be a lot of people who say, you may as well not bring the live instruments and just have it on playback. Right. So anyway, but yes, I hope that the, 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 the joy that, you know, you found in those old records, you know, that we rediscover it or reinvent it somehow or bring it with us. But yeah, it's, um, like you were saying, it's about music rather than about the the mere culture on top of it. So um, with that in mind, should we maybe cap this off by talking about uh, Elliot Shiner's top five records or at least five records that you could reach for and say, those are immortal?
1: You know, I never
0: thought about that.
1: Actually, you're the first person to ask me. You know, uh, the Beatles will always be number one for me. You know, any of the Beatles records. Um, Marvin Gaye, my hero. Ray Charles, my hero. Um, um. Oh God! Um, I can't remember her name now. I, ha- I I was in a coma six years ago. No, and and a lot of the stuff doesn't come out easily. So I can't remember they're- they're- Oh God! Famous folk, uh, singer, songwriter, guitar
0: player. She went out with David Crosby. Ooh, ooh. I might Google this while we're here. I was going to take a guess and say Carol King. No. <laughs> uh, David Crosby. Let's have a look. This is the great thing about the internet age because I can do this while I'm on Zoom to a legendary engineer. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's have a look. Christine Hinton? No. Oh. Stephen Damn. Still. Judy Collins? No. Nope, Joni Mitchell. No, that's great. Yeah, Joni. Joni Mitchell. Yeah, we've got blue on the wall out here.
1: <laughs> amazing.
0: Yeah, I was really happy you mentioned Marvin Gaye and Ray Charles there because I had a big moment in my in my youth, exclusively listening to them for months at a time. Ray Charles, in particular. I don't know that the marketplace now would be receptive to a voice of that quality. You know, the timbre of it and the, 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 the rasp and the baritone nature of it. It's just, it's a truly unique voice. Yeah. I went to, and he was near me
1: at one point, Ray was, and he was doing two shows one night and I brought tickets to both shows. And I went to the first one and it was like, he seemed to play every hit that he'd ever done. And it was amazing. I went to the second show, he played every other hit he had done. And it was, he never played the same song twice. And it was mind blowing.
0: Yeah. um, I saw the most profound experience, not real experience because I wasn't there, but I've seen a recording of, I think it was, Quincy Jones getting the White House you know medal for I forget but it's like a cultural achievement and I think I think that was the one where Ray, uh, Ray Charles was at because it must have been pre- 2004 but either way he was singing for Quincy Jones um and I've forgotten the song he sang now but Quincy was in tears as you can imagine because that yeah it's very yeah. profound and um, another thing recently was I saw that Martin Scorsese and Fran Lebowitz have done this series on Netflix together. Um and um, there's a moment where they cut to watching Marvin rehearse and it was mind-blowing to us modern people, let's say, because we're used to having all these this technical help to sound good. Marvin Gaye sounded as good in rehearsal as he does on his records.
1: Yeah, and when you think that those guys would do a track whether they sang live or overdubbed, they sang it that way. you know, there was no, tuning going on it was that's the way they sang it and they worked hard to to make it sound that great and you know i'd done some records over the past 10 years with people who had made records like that but when pro tools came in you know i worked with one guy he'd spend 10 to 12 hours doing one vocal for one song and then still not be sure if he actually there's enough to choose from. When I did the next record with these guys, he came in and he did two takes on a vocal. And he said that, that'd be enough, right? You can get it going from that. And I realized that was the moment it all fell apart for me, that artists were not willing to work hard at what they do, or some artists.
0: They were willing to hope that you've got enough to choose from and you'll get it later. You'll you'll fix You'll build a track from the two
1: tracks that were made and tune it and rephrase it and do everything to it. Yeah, they call it comping, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It, It just felt... I think I've seen the last
0: of what a band does. Well, we'll um, do our best to, it's, it's, as far as we can, we'll do our best to maintain that tradition. I, I, I'm going to um, ask one final question before I let you go and thank you for all of the time you've given right. uh, to me. And I'm going to go back to Phil Ramone. And the question was, were you still working with Phil when he was working with Paul Simon? No.
1: I was, working, I was working at the studio, but I wasn't working with uh, with Ian Paul. Have you ever worked with Paul? Um, he did a Broadway show. And Phil called me up and said, you know, I, I'd sort of like to remix this. And I think he did it without talking to Paul about it. And uh, we came in there. I I had the master's here and uh, started working on it. At some point I I said to Phil like, why do you want to do this? You know, and he thought about it and really couldn't explain to me why he wanted to do this and we just let it go. So I never, Oh, I did work with Paul once (laughs) he did, the inauguration gala the night before the inauguration
0: of Jimmy Carter wow. and and he played on stage and I recorded it he's my favorite songwriter of all time so it was a very selfish thing to ask yeah amazing songwriter yeah just you you can you can tell Paul Simon by his turn of phrase the way his lyrics the shape of his lyrics is very distinctive um, great line in uh, the most recent album Stranger to Stranger where he says life is a lottery a lot of people lose and it just sounds very Paul Simon so yeah. but yeah so well that's um, there's obviously a lot we could dig through I hope we get to do this again um, Elliot at some point and again thank you for all the time you've given us no, um, what's on your studio schedule for the rest of the day Bob where? of course (laughs) back where we started yeah Um, so yeah um, thank you again I hope you have a good day and um, I will uh, endeavor to pick this up again sometime okay thanks for having me thank you have a great day you too